1986, three years before the fall of the Berlin Wall. In Soviet Ukraine, an equipment test at the Chernobyl nuclear reactor goes horribly awry. Winds carry radioactive particles into the sky, eventually blanketing the Western USSR and Eastern Europe with toxic dust that the Union of Concerned Scientists later estimated would lead to tens of thousands of early deaths. 70 miles downwind lives 11-year-old Max Levchin. A Jew from Kiev, Levchin lives in a grim worker's paradise. Levchin's mother is a physicist who works as a government research assistant. She overhears news of the leak and realizes the reactor may be on the verge of a catastrophic meltdown. She and her husband hurriedly gather their two sons and grab a few belongings. They trudge through the acid rain mist as they head for the train station. Max overhears his mother say, This is bad. Very bad. As they chug 500 miles toward Crimea, they can see a steady stream of fire brigades and ambulances heading in the opposite direction. When the Levchins arrive in Crimea, they and other passengers are stopped at a checkpoint set up to screen people coming off the trains from the north near Chernobyl. A guard runs a stick up and down each person. When he gets to Max, the Geiger counter beeps. The guard switches to a lower setting. It beeps again. He tries a third time. The guard stops and matter-of-factly tells the parents, the boy's bone marrow is contaminated. We'll have to cut his leg off. Max's mother pulls her son into her arms. There's a lot of frantic yelling between the guards and the parents. Then, Max's mother momentarily pulls herself together to suggest one last-ditch idea. Try again with his shoes off. The guard waves his wand over Max. This time, he's clear. Amir Rosethorn was the source of the radiation. Max had stepped on it in Kiev and it had embedded in his shoe. The single thorn had absorbed enough radioactive material to trigger these sensors. For 18 months, Max lives with relatives in the country. Ultimately, the Levchins make their way to Chicago where a distant relative lives. It won't be long before Levchin meets someone with the intellect and drive to match his own. And together, they will quite literally change the retail landscape. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. We're looking at the collision between eBay and PayPal, two companies racing to take over e-commerce on the quickly evolving web. Now, in the last episode, we heard how eBay grew from the clunky brainchild of a frustrated engineer to an overnight sensation with all the growing pains that brings. In this episode, the e-commerce revolution, we learn how PayPal morphs from the once hip and now nearly forgotten Palm Pilot into one of the fastest growing companies in history. It's a hot summer's day in 1998 in Palo Alto. Max Levchin has been crashing on a friend's floor for a couple of weeks. 
The stuffy apartment isn't air-conditioned, so Levchin wanders the Stanford campus in search of a lecture in a large auditorium, someplace where he might settle in unnoticed at the back and snooze in the cool for a bit. When he checks the course schedule, he spots a familiar name, Peter Thiel, who is teaching a class. Huh, well, how about that? A friend of Levchin's started a company that Thiel is backing. He suggested that Levchin contact him. Said he was a cool hedge fund manager type guy investing in startups. As Levchin settles into his chair, Teal is talking about globalization and political freedom. The two subjects are near and dear to Teal's libertarian heart. He also warns about the dangers of concentrated governmental power. There are only six people in the room, so Levchin knows he can't sleep without being noticed. But it doesn't matter because Levchin is captivated by what Teal is saying. No one despises totalitarianism more than someone who flees it, and Levchin's Jewish family lived under the Soviet boot. They were subjected to harassment and denied opportunities, limited where they could live, work, and attend school. Chernobyl was an ecological disaster, but it turns out it was the best thing to have happened to the Levchins. Not that their lives were easy once they left Kiev for Crimea to live with his grandparents. Unlike life in Kiev, he had no computer at his grandparents' home, so he programmed on paper, writing out software code longhand, filling stacks of notebooks with programs for a clone of Tetris and other video games. When he briefly returned to Kiev and finally got to use a computer again, he was pleased the games he programmed actually worked. In 1991, when Levchin turned 16, his family arrived in Chicago with just $700 all their life savings. It was only weeks before he would start school, and Levchin still had to learn English. But how? He fished a busted black-and-white television out of the trash and fixed it, and then he tuned it to the only channel it got. Now the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. What might be right for you may not be right for some. One show that played over and over was the sitcom Different Strokes. The show's main character was a wisecracking black kid played by Gary Coleman, famous for the catchphrase, which Coleman would say to his brother, never failing to elicit laughter. Levchin practiced constantly, approaching the show like he approached programming on paper. He made detailed notes on pronunciation, grammar, word usage, slang, and anything else he could think of. When school started, he had the vernacular down cold. It's the first day of music class, and his teacher calls on him. Max, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? He's pleased to have the opportunity to show off his new language skills, but the teacher looks a little perplexed. Students are trying to muffle laughter. Afterward, the teacher pulls him aside. Max, where did you learn English exactly? What you talking about, Mr. Harris? Levchin explains with some pride how he taught himself to speak English by watching different strokes. The teacher nods, suddenly understanding. Tell you what, Max, why don't you give the nightly news a try instead? Levchin nods. Levchin's parents bought him a used PC, and he continued coding and experimenting with cryptography. In college, Levchin earned a reputation as a brilliant and quirky engineer, a guy who never seemed to sleep. Coding day and night, he still found time to launch three startups. Just before he graduated, he sold one of them, Net Meridian, an automated marketing tools firm to Microsoft, for $100,000. Levchin's 
While waiting for the deal to close and for the check to arrive, Levchin hightailed it to Silicon Valley to figure out the rest of his life. This brought him into contact with Teal. After class, Levchin approaches Teal and tells him how much the lecture resonated with him. Teal starts a polite conversation. What are you doing in Silicon Valley? I just got here. Probably going to start a company. I'm into licensing and encryption. Teal is intrigued. Oh, great. Well, we should meet for breakfast. The two plan to meet at a diner the next morning. Born in Germany and raised in California, Teal was once among the nation's top-ranked chess players under 21. Back in those days, he was so hyper-competitive that after a rare loss, he was known to angrily sweep the pieces off the board. But he eventually realized that chess is a limited universe with only 32 pieces on 64 squares. There's another universe to conquer, discerning the motivations of human dynamics. He links these two worlds by understanding that individuals, like chess pieces, have certain inherent values. He's always looking for high-value players, especially the grandmasters. Suspicious of crowds and groupthink, he gravitated toward libertarianism at a young age. At Stanford, Teal majored in philosophy and founded the Stanford Review, a libertarian-leaning newspaper that he transformed into a campus institution, attracting national attention. Teal also had impressive math and finance skills. He could calculate square roots down to the decimal point in his head. After graduating from Stanford Law School in 1992, he joined a big New York law firm for, by his count, seven months and three days. He found it stifling to be in a place where people's identity was wrapped in competition. And so he bolted, explaining, on the outside, everyone wanted to get in. On the inside, everyone wanted to get out. He moved on to trading derivatives. Somehow, he found time to co-author The Diversity Myth, a book arguing that the university was intent on social engineering through multiculturalism at the expense of preserving the values of Western civilization. The book made Teal a darling of the conservative movement and placed him squarely in the middle of the country's culture wars. When he returned to California to start his own hedge fund, he did it with right-wing backing. By the time Teal meets Levchin, he's in his 30s and already investing in tech companies. He's well in his comfort zone then, when the two meet over breakfast the next day to discuss ideas. Levchin pipes up about his use of cryptography for the personal digital assistant, or PDA, which becomes known as the palm-top computer. I was one of the first developers of the PDA, and I was like, one day, everyone is going to use these at work. What do you think they're going to do when the man is going to try to read their documents, when their customers are going to steal all their data? They're going to encrypt it. And I'm going to invent all the crypto, because I know how to store heavily encrypted data without any loss of performance. Is this boasting? Sure. But aside from Levchin's youthful enthusiasm, Teal sees his value as a player. Perhaps he even has the makings of a grandmaster. PDAs have severely limited power, memory, and storage. Encrypting them without losing performance? Well, Teal is all ears. So here's the idea. A library of encryption schemes that we can license. Teal swallows a bite of eggs and looks at Levchin. How do you capitalize on that? Levchin continues. Everyone will have a palm-like device in the near future. 
They'll need the security. We'll sell the encryption libraries, let others create applications, and collect a penny or two per copy. Then we sit back and let the money roll in. Levchin leans back and smiles at Teal, who knows exactly what move to make next. I want to invest. He promises Levchin that his hedge fund will invest a couple of hundred thousand dollars in seed money. Levchin is pleasantly surprised, and then almost immediately, he's vexed. Who will be the CEO and technology officer? Levchin hardly knows anyone in the Bay Area. One thing occurs to Teal. Maybe I could be your CEO. Hey, that's a really great idea. It's decided. Teal will run the business operations of the fledgling enterprise they call Fieldlink. After developing mountains of very ingenious code, in Levchin's words, the pair pitch Palm to a Palo Alto company manager. The manager listens, but his body language says it all. He breaks the news. No one will use this in the enterprise. This is a personal device. It has calendars and notes. Down but by no means out, the two brainstorm other ideas. They built technology to secure anything on a handheld device. But what would people pay money to protect? Changing course again, they figure consumers would pay to protect a digital wallet where they stash private data like passwords and credit card numbers. But even this, they realize, may not be enough. But then, Teal has a breakthrough idea. What if we digitally store money? What, like a, like a bank? Yes, but, but like a bank that you can carry around on your PDA. Everyone has a PDA. Well, uh, everyone around here anyway. And soon everyone will all over. We could just turn that into an electronic wallet to store and transfer money. And if you lose your PDA, you won't risk losing your money. Exactly. Add to that the ease and convenience. This is it. This is it. The idea for an encrypted wallet with banking applications is so revolutionary that Teal easily raises $6 million. The partners named their new venture Confinity, a combination of confidence and infinity, reflecting the brand they aim to foster. Levchin's prototype quickly generates buzz in the valley with its legions of PDA-toting professionals. Imagine three geeks sitting around at a table beaming one another IOUs for 10 bucks to settle their lunch tabs. But there is an intrinsic flaw. Relying on one company, even one like Palm that has carved a respectable market share, could well doom Confinity to failure. Silicon Valley might be Palm Central, but what about the rest of the country, which is slower to adopt new technologies? What if someone doesn't own a Palm? And what if Palm were to fail. Teal has an idea. What if we run the platform across all mobile phones? Well, that would solve our palm dependency. And think about it. If we could send money person to person directly, we could escape national boundaries, arbitrary laws, corporate tyranny. Levchin nods. No more corrupt governments, no currency controls, no taxes. Just people using money how they want, paying who they want, with no government in between. Peter, look, I hope to get there one day, too, but I'd need two years to develop that service. And even then, cell phone makers would have to redesign their phones to host our beaming function. Teal grumbles. Levchin presses on. The Palm already has that. 
Teal shakes his head. Well, that leaves us with our same problem of relying on the palm. The palm helps with beaming, but... Uh, Teal stops for a moment to think this through. It'll work. What if we host the service on the web, too? Yeah, yeah, then people could access it from anywhere. That settles it. They'll call the product PayPal. On the strength of this futuristic vision, Teal raises $4.5 million in additional financing from Nokia Ventures and Deutsche Bank. Confinity schedules a splashy press event for July 22, 1999 at Bucks of Woodside, a popular diner with a venture capitalist set. The climax of the evening will be the moment Nokia beams its $3 million portion of the investment to Teal's Palm Organizer. But a week before the event, the code isn't finished, and Levchin realizes they aren't going to make it, and he refuses to fake it. So Levchin does what he always does when his back is against the wall. Foregoing sleep, he and two other programmers code for five days straight. With crypto, precision is key, off the tiniest bit, and nothing works. They crunch the last string of code around midnight, 10 hours before the press conference is set to start. They begin testing. Failure. They fix some bugs, try again, and fix some more. Failure. Long after night dissolves into dawn, Levchin continues fiddling with the code. At Bucks, Teal is waiting anxiously. He's unaccustomed to public humiliation. Levchin arrives with just moments to spare. Teal is trying to get a read on him. Levchin's obviously exhausted. Before a handful of journalists and TV cameras, Peter Boole, a partner at Nokia Ventures, inputs $3 million in the amount box, taps pay, and points his palm at Teal sitting nearby. If it works, he pockets the investment. If not, it evaporates. Teal shoots a look at Levchin, who gives away nothing. Diners seem not to notice. They go on sipping coffee, their forks poised over scrambled eggs and toast. Seconds later, the words, Would you like to accept the money? pop up on Teal's screen. In his mind, he's screaming, Yes, yes, yes! But he coolly taps, Yes. And in seconds, he's notified that the transaction is complete. Over the next few months, Confinity rents office space and goes on a hiring binge. Even back then, the real estate market for office space is so tight that Levchin has to promise shares in the company to his Palo Alto landlord. To Teal, this venture is not just about money. It's an instrument of his personal worldview. Teal hopes that eventually, his web-based currency will undermine government tax structures. He wants to take money out of the hands of large financial institutions by enabling more direct person-to-person cash flow. That'll require taking on powerful interests, like commercial banking. So the co-founders seek people like them, hyper-competitive, well-read, multilingual workaholics. Above all, they require proficiency in math and aversion to authority. At first, Teal taps his network at Stanford. Levchin reaches out to friends at the University of Illinois. 
They value talent over experience and bring in people often to fill roles for which they have no actual experience. An accountant becomes a marketing chief. A former journalist runs customer service. Google, another young internet giant, is also known for pursuing Mensa-like minds with impressive academic pedigrees. But Thiel and Levchin don't care a whit about a piece of paper. As PayPal's former CFO told Fortune, Google wanted to hire PhDs, and PayPal wanted to hire the people who got into PhD programs and dropped out. Levchin's idea of a great hire? Someone who's introverted, just as geeky as he is, willing to sleep under his desk, and doesn't get laid very often. Sharing the founder's political views isn't required to join the team. One of Teal's most important hires for its board is his close friend Reed Hoffman, who would go on to become the co-founder of LinkedIn. The pair met in a Stanford philosophy class, and Hoffman is as liberal as Teal is conservative. Among those who are unwelcome, jocks, MBAs, and women. In one job interview, Levchin asks a potential hire, What do you do for fun? I play hoops, Levchin scoffs. Everyone I knew in college who played basketball was an idiot. Levchin won't even consider him. His game of choice is ping pong, which he uses to gauge a candidate's competitive fire. When a female applicant for an engineering position plays poorly, Levchin refuses to hire her, but he's overruled. Six months later, she quits. For his part, the 32-year-old Teal rules like one might expect a libertarian too, reveling in creative chaos and individual choice and expression. No surprise, then, that Confinity headquarters appears completely disorganized, even by Silicon Valley standards. Actually, it resembles a college dorm more than a growing business. Most everyone is in his 20s, wearing jeans and t-shirts. Pizza boxes and board games are scattered across the floor and on furniture. New staff finds no desks or computers waiting for them. Sometimes they don't even know what their job actually is. The fledgling company prides itself on being a meritocracy. Underlings are expected to snark it out with superiors, the belief being that the strongest argument will win. Meetings are discouraged. Instead, employees are expected to solve problems themselves. The exception is when Teal calls an all-hands-open-book session where he documents the company's progress. When Teal calls on someone, he better have data to support his point. People may lie. Numbers don't. Confinity launches PayPal for the Palm in November 1999. Its 24 employees seed it by sending email to friends and family with the subject line, PayPal user beamed you money. The message holds a link to the PayPal website. Almost as an afterthought, Levchin slaps a website demo online so users can download the software. He puts almost no effort into the look and feel of the site. Much to his surprise, the Palm application only draws about 300 people a day. The real action is happening on the crappy website. But there's more unexpected data. Most users aren't the young, affluent, tech-savvy early adopters they've been targeting. They're middle American auction-goers on a site called eBay, trafficking in tchotchkes like Beanie Babies, Pez dispensers, vintage Tupperware. It's like an online garage sale. Levchin is confused. What the hell? This isn't designed for eBay. 
Levchin may be dismayed, but buyers and sellers on eBay are delighted. Eventually, Confinity discontinues the Palm applications, their original idea concept, and concentrates solely on the web. Soon, PayPal and eBay will develop a profitable symbiotic relationship. To develop its own success, PayPal latches onto eBay like a tick on a dog. And as it fattens up to alarming proportions, eBay will try numerous ways to evict this annoying parasite. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like listening to podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors. Please support our show by supporting them. Now, if you like what you've heard, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at wondery.com survey. And tell us what Business Force stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Adam Pennenberg wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Jenny Lauer is our producer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.